Thessalonians, in chapter 4, verse 3, Paul says, this is the will of God, your sanctification. That is your growth in Christ-likeness. Of course, that's not what we typically think about when we ask, what is God's will for my life? But over and over again in the New Testament, God's will for us isn't so much about particular decisions that we face, what job I should take, who I should marry, but more about the kind of people that we become. More about the kind of people that we become. Now, of course, God cares about the particular decisions that we face. He delights when we take even the simplest decisions to him in prayer. Peter says at the end of his first letter, cast all your anxieties on him because he cares for you. And that's a great comfort when we face big decisions and large transitions. And you know, God also gives us one another to help discern which path might be best. But you know, for all that, God's will for our lives, if you will, isn't primarily about guidance, but it's about godliness. It's about who we are in the midst of the decisions that we face. It's kind of like Paul says at the end of 1 Corinthians chapter 10. He says, so whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. Or here in 1 Thessalonians 5, 16 through 18, rejoice, always pray without ceasing, give thanks in all circumstances for this is the will of God in Christ Jesus for you. Now today many of us face a world of seemingly limitless possibilities. You go to the grocery store and you are confronted by 50 different kinds of jam. (laughs) But perhaps much more poignantly, you're also confronted with much more seemingly overwhelming possibilities and choices than that. And if we're honest, you're frightened to death that you will choose wrongly and screw up your life. And you know, Christians can often compound that fear by thinking that we need to also sort of decipher God's will in the midst of all that as to whether I should choose one job or another, for example. And that's doubly frightening, you see, because then if I choose wrongly, I haven't just picked a job that I hate, but I've stepped outside of God's will for my life. Yikes! But friends, don't you see how far that kind of thinking is from what Paul's talking about here? God's will according to our passage, is not about anxiously deciphering our future, but about becoming a certain kind of people. And when we look at what Paul describes here in this short little passage, it's hard not to use the word freedom. God's will is that in Christ Jesus, we be free to rejoice and free to pray and free to give thanks no matter what happens. And no matter what the circumstances, always and without ceasing. So there are three very simple points in our passage this morning. What kind of people does God want us to become? First, the kind of people who rejoice always. Now this doesn't mean that we put on a superficial happy face and pretend like nothing is hard or wrong or sad, right? I remember, uh, I think it was 
my kindergarten graduation. I don't know why they do a kindergarten graduation. They sort of parade these little kids across the stage, and then they made us sing songs. Uh, And one of the songs that the school would typically have the kids sing was Don't Worry, Be Happy by Bobby McFerrin. As if we had great cares as kindergartners. That's not quite what Paul's after here. What Paul's after is the fact that there is an indestructible joy that pervades the Christian life. You see, Paul knew hardships. Listen to what he says in 2 Corinthians 11. He says, Five times I received at the hands of the Jewish authorities the 40 lashes minus one. Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was stoned. Three times I was shipwrecked. A night and a day I was adrift at sea. On frequent journeys, in dangers from rivers, dangers from robbers, danger from my own people, danger from Gentiles, danger in the city, danger in the wilderness, danger at sea, danger from false brothers, and toil and hardship through many a sleepless night, in hunger and thirst, often without food, in cold and exposure. And apart from other things, there is the daily pressure on me of my anxiety for all the churches. Who is weak and I am not weak? Who is made to fall and I am not indignant? And what is Paul's response to all this? What does he say to the Thessalonian Christians who are also undergoing hardships? Don't worry. Be happy. No. Rather, he says something richer and truer and more profound. He says, rejoice always. You see, friends, sometimes I think that the opposite of joyfulness isn't necessarily sadness or struggle but cynicism. Cynicism, that tendency to see life as empty and pointless and just everyone after their own self-interest. But you see, friends, God's will is that we be freed from our cynicism and actually learn to rejoice. And of course, it's not just a general rejoicing or happiness that Paul has in mind here, right? But it's a rejoicing in God. It's got to be that way. Look at the other two verses. Certainly God is the object of our prayer and of our thanksgiving. We pray to God and we give thanks to God. So our rejoicing must be in God himself. To have him as our highest delight and our most worthy treasure and our heart's song, Paul says, always. What does it look like to rejoice always. Perhaps it's helpful to think of a platoon in battle, or maybe even better, a city under siege. And a great war has been raging for years, but at last, the message comes. Finally, word reaches you that the enemy has fallen, and that the war will end, and peace will at last reign. And of course, there are still hardships to come, Those scattered forces of the opposing side will still empty their rounds. They'll still slash and burn the fields as they retreat. There still may be casualties and loss, but despite it all, the victory is secure and the war is won and the tide of rejoicing begins to swell. And nothing can hold it back, you see. No matter what hardships still come before it's all said and done, with the proclamation of victory comes an indestructible joy. 
How many of us Christians have forgotten that the victory has been won? When the job offer doesn't come, when the marriage gets hard, when the diagnosis isn't good, when the siege doesn't relent around the city walls of your heart, friend, remember the one who went deep into battle for us and who faced the only enemies that could truly destroy us. Remember Christ, our great victor, who did battle with sin and death on the cross and who in his death and resurrection conquered them both for all who repent and believe. You see, friends, the gospel message is that word that comes to the city under siege. It proclaims that a victory has been won, and therefore it produces a joy that's indestructible for those who hear it and for those who believe it. Casualty and loss may still come, but it can't break the tide of rejoicing that flows from knowing that our peace has been secured. So, Christian, this morning, are you rejoicing? Are you celebrating what God has done for you in Christ? Are you delighting not just in the gifts of life, but in the giver of life? Even in the midst of the hardships and the trials, are you rejoicing? God's will is that we become a people who are freed from our cynicism and who can rejoice always. Friend, if you're here this morning and you're not sure about this Christianity thing, aren't you still longing for an indestructible joy? In the midst of sarcasm and cynicism and snark that we all love so much in our culture, aren't you wishing that something could lift you up and out of that and put you on a place where there would be joy. Friends, remember what you have in Christ and rejoice. But Paul goes on to say in our passage that God also wants us to become the kind of people who pray without ceasing. Now, I wonder what comes to your mind when you think of prayer without ceasing. Maybe you think of very sort of religious and solemn Monks who do little else but spend time in formal prayers, which actually isn't what monks did. They were quite busy doing lots of things, but in our sort of popular conception, we think that they just sat around and prayed all the time, right? That, of course, is not what Paul means here. Paul himself did lots of other things but sort of have prayer meetings, right? He was building tents and getting in shipwrecks and getting whipped by Jewish authorities. You know, he was quite busy. So he can't mean that. But on the flip side, one might think of prayer without ceasing as simply just sort of cultivating a prayerful attitude without actually praying all that much. You've probably heard me use the Anne of Green Gables illustration. You know, Anne says, I wish that I could just go out to a field and feel a prayer, right? Has anyone here seen Anne of Green Gables? Come on, you know what I'm talking about. (laughs) Don't deny it. But again, is that, what, is that what Paul means by pray without ceasing? Just sort of have a general sort of mood of attentiveness? 
That's not what Paul himself modeled, or even Jesus for that matter. Jesus was always breaking away from his disciples to pray. And as we read Paul's letters, we find that he's always breaking off and sort of running into prayer. So prayer without ceasing must mean something of both for Paul, I think. A constant heart attitude of prayer, yes, where we're actually communicating with God in the ebb and flow of daily life, but at the same time, lots of regular, devoted prayer times with God. Prayer without ceasing. And isn't it the case, when you think about it, that any intimate relationship, any intimate relationship needs both of these things? Imagine a husband and a wife who only talked together while they were running errands, and they never set aside good times to really just speak to one another without distractions. Wouldn't we say that they had a bit of an unbalanced, unhealthy relationship? Or vice versa. What if they only set aside times to talk, but were speechless with one another throughout the ebb and flow of their days together? Certainly that would be very strange and a bit unhealthy. So you see, friends, when Paul talks about unceasing prayer, what he's talking about is a real intimacy with God. A close communion with the one who made us and who redeemed us and who will eventually take us on to glory. Now, we're often tempted to think that the thing that keeps us from unceasing prayer like this is our low level of self-control, right? We say, if I could only force myself to wake up a little earlier in the morning to pray, then I'd be good. Or if I could only force myself to direct my thoughts to God more often throughout the day, then I'd be a little better. If I just had a little more self-control, then I'd be able to kind of get this thing down. But you know, friends... I don't think it's ultimately about a low level of self-control that keeps us from prayer. I think it's actually a pretty high level of self-sufficiency. Wouldn't you say? When I believe that I'm able to do the things that really need to get done, that I'm sufficient in my own strength and resources to accomplish what's before me, when I believe that, when my self-reliance is high, I don't pray very much. Or very frequently. And isn't it so easy to do that? We live in a culture that prizes performance above all else. Where self-made women and men are still our heroes. And where we're taught from a young age not to show our weaknesses. And that the only one you can really count on is yourself. And that your worth at the end of the day is measured by what you've done or what you've achieved. And as a result of this chronic self-sufficiency, has it led us on to a place of glory? Friends, I don't know about you, but I look at us sometimes and I think we're drowning. We're plagued by anxiety and fear and shame. And yet, and yet if we live out of who we are in Christ. There's a total different reality at work. It's been said that Martin Luther 
when he met a friend on the street, sort of coming up to a friend, would say, Brother, do I find you praying? You see, Luther knew that a person in Christ is a person who has within them the capacity for intimacy and dependency on God. Why? Why is our sort of identity in Christ that way? Friends, one reason is that in Christ we know that we are saved, not in our own strength and not in our own performance, but by His grace, right? You see, the very start of a Christian life is the acknowledgement that we must depend on another. And when we come to depend on Christ for our righteousness and our life and our salvation, when it all begins with that moment of abandon to our self-sufficiency and our dependence on another, what do we find? We find that we're ushered into an intimacy with God like nothing we had ever imagined. That His Spirit comes to dwell within us. And we begin to call God nothing less than our Father. And an unceasing union is forged. Brother, do I find you praying? And you know, new desires begin to grow in our hearts, don't they? Before really coming to know Christ and depend solely on His grace, didn't our prayers mostly take flight only when circumstances were bad? When we needed things, when things weren't going our way. Because, you know, before Christ, our highest desires were mostly for our own comfort and control. But you see, now that we're in Christ, there's a growing hunger for God's kingdom and God's glory. And that hunger is not connected to our material circumstances. Whether things are going well for us or things are going not so well for us, we still long for the kingdom to come and God's will to be done on earth as it is in heaven. And in fact, we know that when times are good, we are most in danger of losing sight of God's kingdom. So in the good times, we start praying all the more because we know that prosperity is much of a dangerous adversity. So Christian, are you not just rejoicing in Christ, but are you praying in Christ? Earnestly, fervently, consistently praying. Is your heart engaged in the things of God? Are you taking advantage, most of all, of the intimacy with the Father that Christ has purchased for you? God's will is that we live not just a joyful life, but a prayerful life. A life liberated from our self-sufficiency and into Christ's sufficiency. But third and finally, God wants us to be the kind of people. God's will for us in Christ Jesus is that we become the kind of people who give thanks in all circumstances. This is maybe the hardest one, isn't it? Often it seems like the default mode of the human heart is to complain. To complain about what I have or what I've experienced and to covet something else. You see, we humans aren't just cynical and self-reliant, but underneath, isn't there a gnawing dissatisfaction? So we complain and we covet, but in doing so, 
And even if we happen to get what we want, the dissatisfaction only grows and grows. It's kind of like a sickness where the more you drink, the thirstier you become. But don't you see what Paul is not so subtly hinting at here when he says, give thanks in all circumstances? That there is a life made available for us in Christ that is not bound and determined by the tyranny of our circumstances and by the gnawing dissatisfaction that we feel. That there is the possibility of a life of thankfulness. Thankfulness whether you land that amazing job or not. Thankfulness whether you impress all your friends or not. And whether you change the world upon your graduation or not. Or whether you live up to your own expectations or not. Because there is one who came and said, if anyone drinks the water that I give them, he or she will never thirst again. That there will be a deep and lasting satisfaction that comes from Christ that actually frees you from being determined by the tyranny of your circumstances. And the downward spiral of complaining and coveting. A satisfaction that's so rich that we can give thanks in all circumstances. You know, there are only two life philosophies that I know of that seek to free you from this sort of enslavement to our circumstances. And they do it in utterly different ways. The one says, accept your fate and don't get too attached to life. And if things go south, well, realize that's just how the world works. Matter decays, things die, companies close, relationships end. Don't try to control what you can't control. And to be honest, I actually kind of respect that approach. Because it acknowledges that we aren't the center of the universe. And we can't just pull ourselves up by our bootstraps and save ourselves. But you see, the end result of that approach to life isn't joy or thanksgiving, is it? It's rather a kind of detachment, a kind of shutting down of critical parts of our humanity, a shutting down of ourselves that were built for joy and for thanksgiving. Sure, it saves us from the tyranny of our circumstances, that kind of approach to life. But it does so at too great of a cost. But here's what Christianity says. It says that God has begun a new creation in the midst of the old. And that this new creation will one day swallow up this old order of death and decay and despair. And that even now in Christ Jesus, you can become a part of that new creation. That you can have your sins forgiven and your heart renewed and your future secure. And you can know that your outer circumstances and your inward failures aren't the last word. And they're not the defining word on your life. And what's more, Christianity says that this God of new creation who is able to bring about through a cruel Roman cross reconciliation and resurrection, that the God who can do that is able to take all things and work them together for the good of those who love him.
You see, friends, the circumstances of your life aren't mere accidents or misfortunes, but the places where God's healing grace can work a new creation and transform you more and more into the image of Christ. And what is the cost of this rescue from the tyranny of our circumstances? Is it a shutting down of our humanity? What cost is there to get this? Well, friends, the cost isn't ours. The cost was his. When Christ went down into the depths of our brokenness and bore the sting of our sin so that he might carry us through to newness of life. Christian, this morning, be thankful. Be thankful. Realize that the cross has not only brought meaning to your circumstances, but it's given you cause for thankfulness in the midst of them. See that Christ has set you free from the coveting and the complaining and given his own self to you as water for your thirsty soul. You know, I've been amazed this week as I've been studying the theme of Thanksgiving, how often Thanksgiving comes up in relationship to our holiness. As we take off our old self and as we're called to put on the new self in Christ, one of the defining marks of this new self is gratitude, is thanksgiving. Friends, just as an aside, I wonder how many of our struggles with sin, like lust and bitterness and fear and pride, how many of these struggles would be increasingly overcome if we were to cultivate a heart and life of thankfulness to God. After all, would we hold on to bitterness and hurt and refuse to forgive if we had a heart that more and more became full of satisfaction and thanksgiving for what God has done for us in Christ? If we were engaged in celebrating God's blessings to us, Would we succumb so easily to lust or fear or greed? Brothers and sisters, how could we? So friends, give thanks in all circumstances. So you see here, friends, as Paul draws his letter to a close, he wants us to be certain about God's will for our lives. And God's will is that we be joyful and prayerful and thankful Always and without ceasing and in all circumstances. And God has made all this possible, Paul says, in Christ. This is the will of God in Christ Jesus for you. What is your reason to rejoice? Friends, we are in Christ Jesus. What is the source of your intimacy and prayer with God? Brothers and sisters, you are in Christ Jesus. Jesus, what gives you the strength to give thanks in all circumstances? Friend, you have been united to the one in whom the fullness of God dwells, the one who is clothed with all the glories of the gospel and has given them to you through faith in him. And you see, friends, if it's Christ that makes all of this possible, this life 
that is freed from cynicism and self-reliance and dissatisfaction. If it's Christ that makes it possible, then it's also Christ who gets the glory. You see, that's God's will when it's all said and done. It's not finally about you or me. It's about Christ. It's about the Son receiving all glory and honor and praise. And if He is the source of our indestructible joy and our unceasing prayer and our constant thanksgiving, if He is the one who is the fountainhead of that in my life and in your life and in our life as a congregation, then Christ will be glorified. And then we can know that God's will is being done in our lives. Let's pray. Father, we confess that when we think about these short and simple commands, Lord, how difficult and how overwhelming they seem. Lord, that we would rejoice always and pray without ceasing and give thanks in all circumstances. God, the unconditionality and the totality of that are at times, Lord, seeming out of our reach. But Father, we thank you that you have come to us in Christ Jesus, and you have filled us with your Spirit, Lord, so that now we can actually fight for joy and for prayer and for thankfulness, Lord, and that we have in Him that great source that opens up our lives and hearts to you, O God, you who are our joy and our trust and our praise. Lord, may the tenor of our life together as a church glorify and magnify Christ in this way to such a degree that the world and the city that you've placed us in looks and sees something fresh and something new. Indeed, looks and sees in us your new creation at work. God, we ask all this in Christ's name. Amen. Well, as the music team comes up, We're going to sing a song about rejoicing in Christ. We've heard the sort of command to rejoice always, so we're going to start with this song. Let's stand and sing together.